Welcome to the Tearsheet Challenger podcast. I'm Zach Miller from Tearsheet. With me is Josh Liggett. Josh? What's up, Zach? And we're here with episode 12. Um, 12 painful episodes. Just kidding with that one. But I guess today's, today's um, big, big topic is uh, the Plaid Visa uh, tie-up. Josh, you want to tell us what happened there? Yeah, we got to get our Boston accents on for Plaid. Uh, you know, coming out and getting bought by Visa, you know, uh, that was a horrible <laughs> Boston accent, but you're welcome. Uh, yeah, uh, Visa bought Platt for $5 billion in cash and a little bit of debt. So it's pretty awesome when you can just have $5 billion in cash lying around to buy a really awesome, you know, payments provider, whatever, you know, the whatever Platt, all the fun stuff that Platt does, the connections, data aggregation, all the, all the crazy things that Platt provides to the marketplace. So real, I, it's pretty big news. Yeah, I think so. It definitely got everybody in sort of fintech excited because um, you know it was a, it was a two x I think step up on their evaluation from their last round. Um, so that gets people excited, um, particularly investors. Um, but you know, I thought we would just spend a few minutes talking about maybe what this means for the for the banking ecosystem. Um, obviously, Visa, you know, one of the largest financial institutions in the world, one of the largest institutions in the world. Um, you know, building a tremendous, I think, a very powerful and broad. Um, ecosystem themselves on their rails. Um, and now all of a sudden they're going out and buying a data aggregation platform, Plaid, which really, you know, handles, um, you know, when, when, when a user signs up uh, at an account and they want to connect their, their bank account, they want to connect their, the company they got a loan from, um, Plaid goes out and kind of aggregates all that data content and serves it up to a, an individual app. Um, and so, you know, this, in my mind, you know, this is, this is another step ahead for Visa in terms of their inroads into uh, the fintech community. Um, Plaid, there are a variety of players in the data aggregation um, industry. Plaid has a reputation for being um, well-regarded and used within the fintech community. So like the Robinhoods and Coinbases and stuff like that use it. And so um, Visa has been over the past few years really focused on, um, on reaching, I guess, into earlier stage companies and, and getting them up and running and working with Visa and up on, you know, VisaNet and, and, and using their tools um, even push payments. Um, this gives them the, that inroads into, into Plaid. And obviously Visa works in 200 countries around the world. They can take Plaid. Plaid had begun to go international, I think to the UK, but this actually enables them now to go global with this. Um, this is like sort of the, you know, unsexy underbelly of what kind of modern finance operates on. And um, Visa's sort of acquisition in my mind sort of validates this whole space, even though it is unsexy. Um, if you want to aggregate data, you're going to need to go through one of these platforms at some point. I think this embodies everything we love about fintech that you and I talk about, which is like love sexy, in air quotes or love, love quote unquote, is that like okay. the sexiest fintech is the, is boring fintech, you know, like this boring stuff, the news dropped, it came, you know, the news dropped on one of my groups. I, you know, the, the OMG, Oh my God. I, I like threw it onto another two groups, you know, in, from a bunch of my friends and a bunch of my VC buddies and like most of the people who aren't in fintech are like, what do they do? Like a lot of people who don't aren't in fintech don't understand what they do. Like why is Plaid important? What are you talking about? You start talking about data aggregation and all these different things. They're like, they're like what? But at the same time, this is a, this is a product that is the underpinning of fintech of like open banking of, these opening things up between connecting exactly what you said. And that's vital in those, that's incredibly important, vital for the expansion of digital FinTech solutions out there. So like 
I think the industry, the insiders and the industry experts all understand the value of, uh, you know, of a company like Plaid and, and see how, you know, it's, a, I think it's a, why it can't be a bad move for Visa. I mean, it's, why not? They're, they're pretty awesome. Um, and then, I mean, everyone loves Plaid, you know? Spoken as a true shareholder. Yeah. yeah. I wish I was a shareholder. I did. Amex, um, Amex is a shareholder. So, so oh, that, I mean, Visa. Amex was a shareholder in Plaid also, by the way, which is yeah. interesting. I think City and so many banks yeah. were, were shareholders. Visa and MasterCard were also both in, yeah. in Plaid earlier. So, so one of the things I think that's interesting is there has been sort of a hubbaloo around um, screen scraping, which is a technique that some of these aggregators used early, earlier on in their evolution to, um, to basically, you know, to log in using a, a user's credentials and kind of just through a bot, just kind of sucking the inf all the information out of there and put it into um, other apps. Now that's kind of shunned and frowned upon by many of the big banks. And um, over over the past year, we've seen a few big banks, including Capital One and J.P. Morgan, turn off Plaid, um, block their access to 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 their system. Obviously, these companies want to provide their own APIs. Um, probably want to monetize their own APIs as well. Um, so I, I don't maybe having Visa on Plaid, Plaid side. I almost said Plaid. Um, it it's helps. hard. It's hard. It's hard not to say. It's a hard word. It. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> I understand where you're coming from. No, but so maybe maybe Visa's um, polish and Visa's um, you know presence and size in the industry helps helps Plaid maybe even you know land more of those those big bank relationships. So J.P. Morgan basically came out last week, and I think it's worth mentioning here that um, they were going to block any type of screen scraping and all all the data aggregation and going forward. I think this is beginning at the end of the year or next year. Um, we'll have to go through um, one of their approved APIs. And so that, you know, we're moving, I guess, from the first stage of sort of data, this sort of crude data aggregation to, to more to more push and more bank control type data. And, you know, they, they make a case around customer data security and you don't really want a, a, an aggregator coming in and just sucking everything out because from a consumer's permissioning point of view, you're, you, you want to give the consumer exact um, control over what they share and what they don't share. And when you have an aggregator, it doesn't always work that way. It's kind of brute force type thing. So um, I, guess, I guess this kind of, this puts a little more polish on on the data aggregation industry and, and, and the relationships with some of the big banks. I think it also, I agree with you, it, it does do that. It, it also, you, it could get to a point, sort of the, the Robin Hood factor, if you want to call it, where if, if somebody's coming out and, and doing something to such an extent that it's disrupting the industry, you're going to have to, you know, make a change as seen with brokerage accounts with free trading that just happened the past year, which took them six years to get together, you know, to make it happen. But like, it, you know, I guess JP Morgan says, you know what, you can only use these companies, you can only use these APIs. And then if there was a movement where other banks and other fintechs and other companies are just using, using Plaid or using whoever may be that's on the not approved list, it could be that they have to, you know, change their tune. I could see that happening also. It's, it's also hilarious when all of a sudden, you know, the, the customer data becomes such a focal point at certain points. You can, when, when it, you know, like with, with Facebook and, and all these other companies where, you know, obviously they're using a lot of stuff to monetize on those, on that data. And they, it just, I always find it comical when all of a sudden you're taking the, a lot of companies taking the high road, quote unquote, when, you know, when they're, uh, when they're, when it's convenient to them, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I, I hear that. Um, one of the things I think that's interesting dynamic in this industry that we've learned about in Tearsheet's coverage of, of data aggregation, um, a lot of these guys competing against each other. So you have Plaid, you also have MX, you have um, Fiserv's solution, uh, you have Finicity. Um, and even though they compete, um, they also uh, 
they also collaborate in a way because, because there's so many different points of data uh, and so many different accounts and different types of institutions. Like it's rare that one, one data aggregator has access to all the, all, you know, whatever bank or financial institution their customers are going to want to access. So they'll actually go out and reach out to another um, data aggregator that they compete against um, to be able to bring in that information. And so also like, you know, the, from the banking point of view, from the institutional point of view, they make deals with um, a variety. They're not, they're not limiting their data, ag their data sources to a single data aggregator. They're going to provide that to multiple players because they also want to provide that service to their customers, or at least they'll be forced to. Um, anyway, I, I, I think it's an interesting business. I mean, I, I, you know, we'll see, we'll see where Visa takes it. And um, as you said, it's sort of a validation or at least a, a funny validation of, of sort of the fintech thesis. Um, but, but, you know, it's a non-sexy business that really is the, in a way, the oil of the economy, the, the financial economy is, is this data piece. And I think we're going to continue to cover that in this, in this podcast as well as um, our coverage. Uh, I don't know if that's something you're particularly investing in, Josh. That'd be interesting. I mean, this is something that's really interesting. Can I just take a step, second and thank you that we spent all this time talking about an incredibly interesting fintech, you know, piece that has strategies and, 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 you know, and like so many moving parts and really changing digital things as opposed to talking about stupid colors of credit cards that we start <laughs> every single podcast. I would rather spend, I like, like, I'm so happy that we just had like an in interesting discussion about data aggregation and like, Open, whether or not things are going to be opening up as opposed to like, oh, we just made a royal blue credit card that we're going to try to onboard more users for. Like, it, like this is to me the stuff that's so interesting about fintech and can, and is really really cool. But the problem is, to most of the world, it's boring as hell. And and exactly like you said, and I love boring fintech. I mean, a lot of the data aggregation when you have a company that's so big, you know, a couple of names you mentioned. I mean, now with Plaid with Visa, which now Visa now Plaid turns into like part of a 500 billion dollar you know behemoth basically and then you have Pfizer which is also a monster you know 80 billion dollar 90 billion dollar market cap it's sort of hard to get into the, the, that space when a lot of it has already happened you know definitely looking data is obviously the new oil and any type of data aggregation play is very interesting it's quite always a question of timing in the market and you know like the question that we sort of spoken about offline and, and a couple weeks ago is like investing in a challenger bank seed stage right now isn't necessarily the greatest idea in the world with all this you know all the people out there um but i'm just happy we're talking about this and not <laughs> colors of credit cards well that's a great segue josh because actually we published some we on tertiary we published some research this week we um we reached out to i think it was 172 financial professionals i um, mean we wanted to get their view on what they thought of the challenger banks how competitive challenger banks were to each other um, and how competitive they were to incumbents. Um, and so I would 100% agree with you on the consumer side, um, even though, you know, there's, there's a certain level of things being overhyped. We heard, we saw that in the research. Um, but on the business side, on the commercial banking side, nobody ranked well at all. Um, and so to me, oh, most interesting. So, so you know, we asked them to rank out of, out of uh, one to five scale, five being the most competitive. Nobody scored over a three on the commercial side of the of of the challenger banks. We've talked about some of these on the on the show. You've got Aslo and Axos and um, Novo. Um, yet when we asked professionals to rank challenger banks in general and their potential to be competitive in the, in the commercial banking side, that was actually the highest ranking there. So. 
that ranked higher than all the individual rankings. And so in my mind, that just means that at least the industry sees that, uh, you know, they're, they're bullish on the fact that a challenger bank can come in and be competitive in commercial banking, but we haven't seen it yet. Um, and so I just wanted to throw that in as a, a you know, sort of an addendum to what you had just said. Yeah, it's, I think it's a very clear point that is that these challenger banks are awesome. They're really cool what they're doing. Uh, and the question is like, yeah, is, have we seen the one that's going to be the, the, the really interesting one? Has it, has it been created yet? Is it going to be a spinoff of something we're exactly going to be? And I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and so, you know, we're starting to see, like, you know, I guess early stage of maturation of some of these companies. And we had Starling Bank, a UK-based bank um, that is going international, um, come out this week with an interview um, that said basically they, they didn't, they're not planning on exiting to a, a, uh, an incumbent bank because that's sort of an anathema to why they were, they were founded. But instead, they were looking to break even next year and go public in 2022. How likely do you think that is, Josh? <laughs> <laughs> wow well i haven't looked softball. under there softball yeah <laughs> let's just well, watch they just act like they're just ipo right now why do we have to wait for 2022 it's yeah yo like why not what's the problem <laughs> well just give them well, 10 100 billion dollar valuation and and ipo right now we're good to go so we, i did pull some numbers here so you know if you look at the uk-based competitors monzo and, and revolute um they in 2018 um Let's see. Monzo had a 33 million pound loss and Revolut looks like had around something similar, 32.8 million. Um, Starling did somewhat better with the pre-tax loss of 26.8 million pounds. So, I mean, these companies are losing a not insignificant amount of money per year. But I, I think I think not we've seen not insignificant. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no problem. Well, I mean, so this obviously these I, we're, the industry is seeing investors are seeing these companies will take hundreds of millions of dollars of of capital to to get off the ground and really become even a sliver of a real competitor. Um, maybe they acquires billions. We haven't seen that yet. Um, but anyway, I mean, so I think it is possible. I mean, one thing that's worth mentioning here is like the the, the challenger banks are looking for. Um, and I would say Starling's maybe a little more aggressive in a sense about trying to get to break even to show that they can build a business. Because as you were talking about on our last podcast, like unit economics are beginning to matter more, especially if they need to go out and raise bigger rounds. So there are things that they're doing that are working, right? So they've got freemium models. So people pay up for, you know, a nice royal blue card. Not exactly, but they pay up for other things. Um, they pay up for business accounts. Um, and, you know, they, they're getting into lending there. So it's another revenue stream. Um, I think it is possible if, if, if done right and, and, and done like with thoughtfulness that they can get to break even and become profitable in not, in not a super long time. We're not talking 10 years out. We're not talking Uber time. We're talking like, I think a couple years. I mean, I'm not, Am not I overly like, bullish on this. I don't know. I don't think you're overly bullish. I, I think it really depends on the company. And I think really push comes to shove and they're not what it seemed like is they're going to try to go public on the, in, in London on the London stock exchange. Um, but, you know, once that roadshow starts and once those numbers start to come out and once people get to really nitpick and dive into the numbers and really look at everything, you know, that's what really separates, you know, the, the, the wheat from the shaft. That's really, you know, what what goes on. And I mean, I, I can't make a judgment call on this company because I haven't looked under its hood and seen what exactly its unit economics are. But I mean... Uh, right, you know, right. I think right after our podcast, someone like the head of managing director of Accenture said like the same thing. Like 
you know, like we're all like, this isn't new that we work is having an effect and, and people are getting tired of just not having a path of profitability, which is, should be a, should be like a, a, a like it's fine. You're not profitable. It's fine that you're looking to grow, but to not have a path of how to get there is something that was tolerated in the market for a couple of years. And is just, is insane. And yeah, it's, but- it's crazy. It is crazy. I mean, these are cycles, right? I mean, we had the same we had the same cycle in you know two thousand and one, right? Yeah, which is fine. It's just, but then you're gonna have and you're gonna and during, at, at two thousand one during that time, you also had you know companies like Amazon come out, and you had awesome companies you know being you know being created during those time periods. There's awesome companies being created during this time period as well. But it's like it's it's crazy when it's news that like oh we are gonna hopefully become profitable you know, and have a path of profitability, like, okay, sure. Like that should be standard in, in the world. But and so, and so the real, the quite like I, I, if they have the, if they have a business model that makes sense and then they go, they say, Hey, by the way, we broke, we actually broke even and we actually have good union economics and we're really starting to make, get things going. Like I could see it happening. I could also see them falling on their face and not hitting it whatsoever because like they, because the market turns down or there's a consolidation in the market or just consumer, you know, behavior changes or business behavior changes, whatever it may be. Like it's, it's, it's a very, I definitely think it's a point of extreme fluctuation for these very, very large challenger banks. So one of the things I guess I'm a little disappointed in, I don't really have an answer to this. I'm not smart enough, but I I don't, we've seen all these challenger banks that, that for the most part, you know, many of them don't, aren't even banks. We, and every time we publish one of these podcasts, I have people reach out to me. They're not banks. We're calling them banks because they function as a bank. But yes, many of them don't actually have a license and they use you know, other- Account, other... account hold a, a place where you can deposit <laughs> cash that allows you to send money no, that, from that point and, and receive money from that right, point. Right. It's a little bit wordy. It's a little yeah. wordy when you call it that. Bank-like companies. Um, but what, I, I don't think we've seen a lot of- I guess I'm a little disappointed in how little creativity we've seen around really kind of changing revenue models. Um, you have subscription models, you know, but I, that's not necessarily different than just charging a fee on a checking account that a regular bank would do. Um, I don't know. I, I, you know, in some way, they, they, we, we unbundled and we're sort of starting to rebundle, but, you know, the reason it was bundled in the first place was, you, you know, you needed all, there were some synergies between these products and you needed all these things to run a bit large financial institutions. And now, now we're seeing these challenger banks um, start going around looking, looking for revenue opportunities. And they're start, and you know, what's coming is they're just, they're just really approximating looking like a, a regular bank. Um, whether they provide those services themselves or they partner with another one, you know, that, that doesn't really concern me, but um, I, w- I would have liked to see, or will like to see, um, if we can get some more creativity. I don't, I d- again, I don't know what manifestation that takes, but I, that would be interesting for me. I, I agree. Uh, the, well, I have seen some creative models in terms of trying to get revenue from different points, but most of those companies, most of those models are coming from much earlier stage companies. And I think that you sort of get into, and, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Once you hit, become like yeah. a company that's like a $500 million valuation, even a mm-hmm. hundred. Like you're, you're 100, 200, 300, and all of a sudden you're pivoting your business model. You know, there's going to be a lot of pressure from your investors and be a lot of mm-hmm. pressure from your board. Like, hey, we're, you know what? We're going to go away from this very traditional fee-based model to like, I don't know, charging per second that you 
log on to the account I, I, or coming up with some create I, I don't know like some like crazy, old school ISPs yeah I don't know like what like some like ridiculous out there business model that like that is just very creative and very interesting and like if you have board members and and you know and large and like banks and financial institutions on your board you know like you know like going back to like a plaid what if plaid's like oh we're gonna pivot and like JP Morgan and all the banks and the cities and all of them are like, no, you're not doing that. Like, that's just not going to happen. You're going to get, you're going to have to fight your, you know, your investors. So I think you sort of get, once you get that big, it's, it's, it's hard to reinvent yourself. And that's sort of what Amazon has done incredibly well is the whole thing that they're always disrupting themselves and that they're always willing to reinvent themselves. But not every company is willing at that stage to try to blow everything up in order to, survive because they see a problem happening right now because it takes a lot of guts uh you know to do that i think that's sort of might be one of the issues but i definitely I agree know. with that that assessment um and just as you're saying it i'm just like i honestly i don't know what how how, how you could get much more creative doing what they do right and banks take money in they hold it and they move it around and sometimes they lend it um you know I don't know what else you could charge for. Um, you know, there, there have been talks about um, consumers being able to monetize their own data longer term, but that's on the consumer side. I, I, again, um, I, it's just it's a statement hard. I wanted it's to put hard, out there. It is hard. Yeah, exactly. it's a hard with, gut to but someone's going to figure it out. Someone's going to figure so. it out. Yeah. And then once they figure it out, everyone just follow that, you know, probably. Well, or the, the challenge is like the old school, like big banks, like JP Morgan just, just announced, uh, it was yesterday, I think they reported earnings. Like they had record earnings since the financial crisis. Like they got back to where they were before the financial crisis. And so like, you know, that works, you know, yeah. it's big, it's unwieldy, it's, it's inefficient or whatever, but it works. Um, yeah. One thing that's worth mentioning also, Goldman released some data. Goldman has, has sort of made a commitment to public markets to be, um, I guess more transparent in how their business units break down, especially as they're moving more and more into this consumer banking thing. And so as much money as they plowed into Marcus and how much money they plowed into Apple card, uh, it was interesting. They basically said that, I mean, I think they've been, I don't know the exact number, but I would assume it's over a billion dollars been invested in the consumer bank um, that this year for the last four quarters, uh, consumer banking, which includes, I don't know if it includes Apple card, but it includes Marcus and, and Goldman's own credit card. Um, accounted for three less than three percent of their revenues. Yeah. Right. And so I when they when they Goldman started Marcus Sachs is, <laughs> Goldman Sachs is really big. Yeah, it is really big. So so it's it's unfair comparison, right? Like, but um, you know, they've staked sort of the future of the of of their institution on the viability of this consumer bank. Um, a lot of their resource, a lot of their money going in. Um, I was even looking at just you know today doing some research on who who the top talent was on the consumer side, but. Again, they, they intended to go into this business that the, this, the markets would throw off, I think, $5 billion a year in revenue um, within a couple of years. I think that was originally their thing. I don't know how close they're going to be to that. But again, it's, it's a tiny percentage. Um, I just thought it was worth mentioning. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, Goldman Sachs. You're just going to really say Goldman's huge. Business. Yeah. It's freaking huge. You know, like, come on. Like, like, it's funny. You take numbers, you're like, oh, my God, they spend so much money on this. They're like, yeah, but it's like, you look at their balance sheet that's like it's it's like a rounding error it's like the you know like numbers and millions at the or numbers and billions whatever at the top left you know and it's yeah. just showing like these are huge institutions and maybe it's a play for the future maybe it's a play this it's maybe it's trying to get your hand in everywhere but or maybe it's pr who knows but you know they still have you know they still do what they do best you know which is you know they still they're still around when 
Uber's going their IPO. They're still, you know, involved in, in, in the roadshow. They're investing in that. They're still doing their investment banking stuff, you know. That's, mm-hmm. that's what Goldman is. And that's what they're, they're going to, that's going to, I can't imagine that not being a huge part of their business for, you know, unless investment banking just dies overnight, which it's, that's going to be hard. I for don't think it will. Yeah. yeah, probably not. Probably not. <laughs> Safe bet. Um, yeah. How about it moving to the web? What, investment banking? Yeah. What, the blockchain? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking more like crowdfunding or something like that, Why but I, un- unlikely. Sure. I think I think yeah. you need the the, the, the big. This, I say this like a million times to like everybody, which is funny. Is that uh, that you have pri- a lot of times you have private companies and they want to stay private and they don't want their information to get out. And so, like, this is something I talk about a lot with my friends who are doing like blockchain like assets. And they're like, oh yeah, let's just make everything open to everybody. It's like, well, then they'd be public companies. They wouldn't be private. Like they want to keep their information private. So like, you're going to move to the web and like make everything fully transparent, like a hundred percent transparent. Like who's going to go there? You know, more likely they'll, some Eric Reese gets involved in the LTSC and they, you know, they figure something out there. No, our best friends over there. <laughs> uh, in the remaining time, I'm not going to In the remaining time, um, or you could just do what the Monzo co-founder did, right? Monzo oh being one of the, um, and I know we were prepping for the, sh- for the show. Basically, um, Paul Rippon, who was the co-founder of Monzo, uh, has quit the UK Challenger Bank this week um, to spend more time farming alpacas. And I read this and I thought this was totally a story for Josh. Um, I think this is probably a bucket list thing for Josh. I mean... Yeah. Who wouldn't, so, who wouldn't leave their job to go farm alpacas? Oh I like, love those animals. Did you watch, I'm going to date myself. Did you ever watch the Larry Sanders show? When yeah. he moves, he moves to Montana and like whittles for like three weeks and then wants to lose <laughs> his mind. <laughs> and like Letterman, I think was going to do that. They joke around, you know, I mean, would I love to like move to a mountain and just like be a lumberjack? Yeah. Like just by myself and, and not have to answer emails all the time. But I mean, I'm proud of him that he's doing that. He probably has some money in his pocket though which is nice to, to feed those alpacae, alpaca, alpacas, alpacae. I actually don't know the plural of alpaca, but um, he's almost 50. Uh, he said he was working in financial services for 27 years uh, and has been working away from his home for the last eight years. So it took its toll on him. Um, you know, alpacas, you know, it wasn't just like by chance, his wife happened to have started an alpaca farm. And so he joined her on it. But, um, you know, it's one thing I think that is starting to come to light is the toll that, that starting fintech companies um, take on, on, on people and families on life on lives. Yeah. You, you, you know, the my, grind. Yeah. My, I, I know the grind. My wife, uh, you know, m- you know, I, my wife uh, loves looking at the bucket list family. I don't know if you're familiar with them. It was a guy who sold his company to Snapchat for like 30 million. And oh, when he just, travels around the world. Yeah. He's he just yeah. like, he, he basically just quit. They sold everything and just, with their two kids, or I think even one was like born on the road. I don't even know for like a lot for like he, and he got like YouTube to sponsor it. And he just went off and like, Hey, I just like sold my company and I'm just like, uh, I'm just gonna go have fun and hang out with my kids and let them experience the world for like two years. Now he like, they like settled in Hawaii and now he's doing something else. He turned himself into like a reality TV star. But like the funny thing is that a lot of these founders, these people that like, you know, love working, you know, as much as they hate, the, the grind, they love it. Yeah, I put probably put myself in that list also. And like what you normally you don't see as a founder being like, all right, I'm done now because like that's not their personality. Their personality is just to continue to build, to build and stuff. Like, right. Yeah. It's just like, they're going to, and I would like, he's going to build himself a pack of farm in like three months and be like, 
you know, like Arrested Development, I've made a huge mistake, you know, like Joe, Joe Blue. There's more pop culture references for you, Zach. Um, but I, I, I can imagine him getting bored really quickly unless he tries to figure out how to scale um, alpaca, maybe different colors of alpaca to sell to different materials, people. different, <laughs> different materials. material of alpaca. Um, you know, maybe subscription out, alpaca, subscription mm-hmm. alpaca as a service. Um, <laughs> Maybe, you know, like, I, could you imagine? This could go a lot of ways, yeah. It could go, could you imagine? I mean, I would love to see that, just like a crazy founder just try to, like, take some board, like a, a like some random business and try to, like, scale it like you would a startup. I think that's a Saturday Night Live sketch waiting to happen. You should pitch it, Zach. Totally, I will. Josh, thanks for, for, for your time again. And this is always, always great uh, co-hosting this show with you. And uh, thank you, li- dear listeners, for putting up with us for another week. Yeah, that, guy, that was a little fun at the end, but uh, always good to, to co-host with you, Zach, and talk about Wicked wicked Played. Wicked Played. Again, bad Boston accent. Bye, Josh. See you guys.